0: found is that most of the serial killers are very normal people. Um, Some of them, they're actually very nice people. They're pleasant people. Um, It's a tragedy that they became serial killers. And thereby, I'm not condoning what they're doing. And I'm also not um, neglecting the fear and, and the pain that the victim went through, and the pain that their families are suffering. But serial killers are very, very normal. And they have a lot of pain inside them that that compel them to do what they do. That is the voice of Mickey Pistorius, the South African forensic psychologist who pioneered the use of criminal profiling in South Africa and whose work in the case we are discussing in today's episode not only played a role in securing an arrest, but also inspired the creation of the first investigative psychology unit within the South African Police Service in 1995. Welcome to True Crime South Africa, I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and this is episode number three, The Station Strangler. Before I get into today's case, I'd like to raise an important point about the content of the episode. This case covers the brutal sexual assault and murder of children under the age of 15. While we will all find it difficult to listen to such content, it may disturb some listeners more than others. Please be aware of such upcoming content and skip to the next episode if you feel it may be too much for you. On the 12th of March 1994, two young boys, 10-year-old Alroy van Roy and his cousin Rayno, left their home in Strand, Western Cape to help push grocery trolleys at a local shopping centre in the hopes of earning a few rand in tips to spend on treats and arcade games. The boys worked for a while and then Raina got hungry and went to a nearby shop to place an order for hot chips. While they waited for their food, they looked at one of the arcade game machines. The boys were approached by a man who offered them money to play a few games. They eagerly agreed and invited the man to join them. After enjoying their sponsored games, the boys collected their food and left the shop to sit on a nearby curb and eat. The man from the shop approached them again and asked if they could help him to carry some boxes to a nearby train station. He offered them 10 rand each for the effort. In 1994, to these two young boys, 10 rand would have seemed like a fortune and they agreed to assist. Halfway to the train station, however, Rayno became suspicious of the man as he'd figured out that the boxes they were carrying were empty. He told Elroy they should leave. Both boys had heard stories about a man that was killing young boys. That wasn't happening in Strand, though, Alroy reasoned. So while his cousin abandoned the mission and headed back to their home, Alroy continued on with the stranger. He didn't return home for dinner that night. Alroy's body was found a week later in Clanefle, Yesterofia, twenty two kilometers from Strand. The discovery of his body would be the key to ending a series of murders which had plagued the nearby community of Mitchell's Plain and surrounding communities for eight years. Elroy van Roy was victim number 23 of the serial killer that had become known as the Station Strangler. South Africa in 1994 was a brewing pot of rebirth and struggle. Apartheid had fallen and the country was about to celebrate by holding its first democratic elections in which all South Africans, regardless of race or creed, would be able to cast their vote. For 23 families, however, this new freedom meant very little because their young sons were dead and their killer was still haunting the streets of Mitchell's Plain. Mitchell's Plain is 32 kilometers from Cape Town and one of South Africa's largest suburbs. It was established in the 1970s by the apartheid government to provide housing for people displaced by the Group Areas Act, which was an attempt to segregate people into specific areas by race. By the late 1980s and early 1990s, Mitchell's Plain had started to develop areas of urban ghetto due to a lack of attention and resources from the government, and the diverse groups of people living in those areas were blighted by severe poverty and soon the scourge of the drug epidemic. Despite the growing criminal element, children were still believed to be safe in Mitchell's Plain and they would regularly walk to the beach, shopping centres and ride the train system on their own. This may seem strange to us now, living in the times we do, where most children don't even walk home from school alone. But in the mid-80s to early 90s, it was completely normal. That was until local boys started disappearing. The first recorded victim of the serial killer who would become known as the Station Strangler was in 1986. Jonathan Clarkson was 14 years old. His body was found on the 3rd of October 1986 in the field surrounding Moradam Railway Station. He had been sodomized his hands tied behind his back, and his face was pushed into the sand. The cause of death was strangulation, with a piece of his own clothing. This would become known as the modus operandi of the station strangler. Another eight victims would be found before the 90s rolled in. Josef Hoffman was 10 years old and found murdered on the 7th of January 1987 in Rocklands. The body of Mario Thomas, 13 years old, was discovered 16 days later in Kalesreffia, The station strangler's fourth victim remains unidentified to this day. The child was found in April 1987 in the same location as the first victim. Twelve-year-old Freddie Cleves was found two months later at Belhar Station. Samuel Ngaba, 15, was found at the same station in August 1987. The seventh victim would also never be given back his identity or an opportunity to be buried by his family. His body was discovered at Morderdam Railway Station on the 1st of October 1987, almost a year to the day of the discovery of the first victim in exactly the same location. Calvin Spiro was just nine years old when his life was taken by the station strangler. His body was recovered at Unibel Station near Belhar on the 8th of February 1988. Denver Gazoo was the last victim for that decade. He was 11 years old when he was murdered, and his body was found near the Sarepta station. The discovery of nine children murdered in horrific fashion within such a short period of time would send any community into a panic, and Mitchell's plane was no different. The cases had all been assigned to one detective in the local police force, but with no training in serial killings, and no previous experience in such cases, the murders were not investigated as a series. The detective had little to no resources with which to investigate and he retired from the police force without having made much headway at all. In the meantime, South Africa welcomed the 1990s with a sense of excited expectancy for some and unfounded trepidation for others. Freedom was knocking on our door, but there was one South African who was relishing his freedom in a different way. The station strangler had committed nine murders and there was no sign of police on his trail. For two years, he seemed to control his compulsions, but in October 1992, his bloodlust took over once again. After a two-year silence, the station strangler returned to Mitchell's plane to claim his next victim. The body of 11-year-old Jacobus Lowe was discovered on the 27th of October 1992 in Mdandi Beach. The killer seemingly went silent for another year, and then, in January 1994, all hell broke loose. The body of an unidentified child was found on the 13th of January 1994 in the Valtafrieda dunes. The dunes were remote and desolate, sandy with enough shrubbery and vegetation that a body would not easily be seen the station strangler, had found his new killing fields. All of the rest of his victims would be dumped in these dunes, and the area would forever be synonymous with the horror that had taken place there. Elino Sprinkle was found deceased in the dunes on the 20th of January 1994. He was 11 years old. Donovan Swartz was found just five days later. Donovan had been the adopted son of Stella Jafter, who would later report that she searched for her 10-year-old son for two days, before she went to police, when she did attempt to file a missing person report. She was allegedly told by police to carry on looking, because there were many missing children, and they had no idea where they were. Stella would eventually find out the fate of her son, while watching news footage. A camera panned into an area, where the body of a child had been found. The body had thankfully been removed, but clothing remained. That had yet to be collected. Stella knew the moment that she saw the khaki pants and little red and white striped shirt that her son was dead. It may seem strange to some that Stella would wait 48 hours before reporting her son as missing. It must be understood though that at this time in our country's history many groups of people did not trust the police. In fact, not long before, the police were not a service, but rather a force, which was wielded against the people, rather than in favour of their protection. It would take time to change that perception in the public's mind. On the same day as Donovan's body was found, 12-year-old Jeremy Benjamin was found just 20 metres away. Jeremy had been gone for a week before his family realized that he was not with one of the many family members or friends he would stay with. It was not uncommon for children to move between houses in different areas, using the train system or hitchhiking to get around. Jeremy had moved between his mother's house in Mitchell's Plain, his father in Stellenbosch, friends in Makassar, and his grandmother in Iosetaphia, with no house phones or cell phones to keep in contact. By the time the family realized that he was not at any of these places, it was too late. The discovery of so many bodies, in such a short space of time, whipped the community into a frenzy. They demanded that the police start to take the murders of their children seriously. There were many more missing boys, and the public started to conduct searches of the dunes themselves. The local police force attempted to work with the community, and on the weekend following the discovery of Donovan and Jeremy's bodies, an organized search was conducted with police officers, members of the South African army, and community members. Eight more bodies were found. Jeremy Smith was 13 years old at the time of his murder. Marcelino Cupido was just 9 years old. He had been staying with his siblings at his grandmother's house for a short time when his father had instructed his mother to go and bring the children home. Marcelino had asked to stay a while longer as he enjoyed visiting with his grandmother. His mother reluctantly agreed and gave him 50 cents to spend at the shop. That was the last time she saw her child. After the recovery of his body, she could only bring herself to identify his clothing, Marcelino's father had the task of identifying his body. Neville Samai was 14 years old, and his body was also recovered during the weekend search, along with an unidentified child as well as an unidentified adult, the first and only known adult victim of the station strangler. Fabian Willamore and Owen Hofmeister were best friends. They were found lying side by side in the dunes. Fabian was 8 years old and had been strangled with Owen's vest. Owen was 11 years old and had been strangled with Fabian's underpants. There had been so many people living in Owen's mother's house that she had only realised he was missing when one plate of dinner remained untouched on the night of his disappearance. The last body to be found on that weekend search was that of an unidentified child, whose remains were found fully closed, but with his underpants laying nearby. He had been strangled with a cord. It would later emerge that almost all the Station Strangler victims had been redressed in some way after having been sodomized. Forensic psychologists would state that this indicated the killer attempting to undo some of the terrible act he had committed. Following the horrific discoveries of the weekend search, a 14-man special task team was established in February 1994, called the Station Strangler Squad. The task team was headed up by Lieutenant Johann Kortza. In stark contrast to the initial investigation in the 80s, This task team was given every resource available. The squad had their own incident room at Mitchell's Plain Police Station and an additional three caravans on the premises for extra room. They were issued with computers and data capturing assistance, and a team of forensic psychologists, including the only forensic psychologist at the time, trained to draw up a profile of the killer, Mickey Pistorius. Pistorius was flown in from Pretoria. Pistorius was flown in from Pretoria for sessions with the station's strangler squad. She faced challenges on the case, including being one of the first women to work with the predominantly male police force on such a case. She also struggled to get many of the officers to buy into the work she was doing, which. Seemed magical and mystical to them at the time. Pistorius details these struggles in several books she has written, which cover this case as well as the many other serial killer cases she's worked on. I highly recommend these books for a deeper dive into the psyche of a serial killer, and I will reference them in the podcast notes. The Station Strangler Squad was immediately inundated with thousands of tips from the community. Most were well-meaning citizens who truly believed that certain people they knew could be the station strangler, while some were simply using the tip line to create problems for people they didn't like. Every tip had to be investigated, though, and the squad would interview and interrogate 2,000 suspects in three months. The case was also being used by politicians to campaign for the upcoming elections, and the press was hounding the squad continuously, with 300 incoming calls a day to the tip line, the members of the squad barely slept for three months. They even interviewed child molesters to gain an understanding of their modus operandi in the hopes of gauging what type of person they were dealing with. Despite the huge effort now being put in by police, it was not enough for the public. The community wanted an arrest and they weren't prepared to wait. The police station in nearby Steenberg was almost burnt to the ground in protests. If the community suspected that a killer was in a specific house, they would demolish it until they got to the person they wanted. The police often had to rescue individuals from the rooftops of houses as they clambered to get away from a bloodthirsty crowd. Schools held awareness sessions around safety and even changed their schedules so that younger children could walk home with older children. I have a picture in my mind of this scene. A community losing their minds, setting fires, becoming vigilantes, consumed by the horror that was unfolding all around them, terrified and desperate. And in amongst this chaos, a dark figure moves through the crowd. He is silent and observant, watching the anarchy he has created and waiting for an opportunity to sidle up to his next victim. The forensic psychology team on the squad requested the assistance of Robert Resler, the renowned American profiler who is known for being the pioneer of criminal profiling. He agreed to come to South Africa to assist, but the decision was taken not to bring him to the country until after the elections, as the political turmoil and violence around it was too much of a risk to Resler’s safety. In the meantime, Mickey Pistorius developed her own profile, which Resler would later review and determined to be 98% similar to what he would have written. Ultimately, Resler's presence would not be required, although he did eventually fly to South Africa for a press conference where he discussed the excellent work carried out by the forensic psychologists on the case. Pistorius's profile stated that the station strangler would be of the same racial group as the victims and she believed that he lived within the same community. He would be aged between 25 and 30 and Pistorius would later clarify that she had arrived at this age group because most serial killers start killing in their early 20s and considering the first murders had been in 1986, that would put him in that age bracket. He would be employed in a position of authority like a teacher, policeman, preacher or social worker. He would be single, homosexual, and possibly still living with his family. Pistorius profiled the killer as an intelligent man who would, at the very least, be bilingual and dress neatly. He would prefer the company of children over adults, and would drive a vehicle which had been resprayed to change the colour at least once. Pistorius believed that the killer would have been sexually molested by a family member at a young age. In a move which was a first for South African law enforcement, Pistorius' profile was released to the media. It was a risky move, but the squad felt that they had little choice. They had to arrest the station strangler before he struck again. Sadly, this would not be the case, as young Elroy van Roy would be found murdered in March of that year. Elroy's murder, though, would add another piece to the puzzle as for the first time in the series an eyewitness came forward claiming to have seen the station strangler with funroy on the day of his death she described a man with a dark complexion and an afro-like hairstyle the man had a scar on his cheek an identikit was developed and released along with pastorius's profile on the 12th of april 1994 a nurse at a psychiatric facility picked up a newspaper and looked at the identikit on the front page. She then read the profile of the serial killer being hunted. She immediately contacted police, stating that she believed one of the patients in the clinic she worked at was the station strangler. Norman Simons, later known as Afzal Sarfaraz, Norman Simons, after his temporary conversion to the Muslim faith, was born on the 12th of January 1967 in Greenpoint, Cape Town. Simons was the product of an interracial relationship, which in South Africa at the time was illegal. His childhood was tumultuous and as a toddler he was sent to live with his grandparents in the Eastern Cape, where he would be raised in their causa traditions. He would be passed between relatives in the Eastern Cape, Johannesburg and Durban, throughout most of his childhood, before eventually returning to Cape Town as a teenager to live with his mother, her new husband, and his older brother. Simons fit the profile like a glove. He was unmarried, a teacher, and still lived with his family. His friends stated that he was homosexual. Simons was highly intelligent, spoke seven languages, listened to classical music, and dressed impeccably. He volunteered in an organization that helped ex-convicts rehabilitate into society he claimed to have been sexually abused by his older brother when he was a teenager. After the telephone call from the psychiatric nurse, Simons was brought in for questioning. Instead of answering questions, Simons offered to write his life story for police. They gave him a pen and paper, and he proceeded to start writing. When he was done, it was late at night, and as he was not officially under arrest yet, Kortzer asked Simons if he'd like to sleep in one of their caravans for the night. agreed and was placed under armed watch. On the morning of the 13th of April 1994, Simons was arrested in connection with all the murders except Elroy von Roys, as police claimed to still be building a case against him for that murder. Later that day though, the police stated that they did not feel they had enough evidence to hold him on the Mitchells plane murders and released him briefly, only to arrest him very soon after for Elroy's murder. During his initial few days in custody, Simons confessed that he had been killing children since 1986. He would later retract this confession, only to confess again and offer to show police where he had dumped all of the bodies. To ensure that there was no chance of a defense lawyer claiming that police had shown him where the scenes were, an officer with no knowledge of the case was brought in to accompany Simons as he pointed out the scenes. The journey through Mitchell's plane was undertaken in the very early hours of the morning to avoid the community finding out that they had a suspect out in the open. Simons took the police to several of the scenes and then Told them that he wanted to show them a body they hadn't found yet. He pointed out a scene in the dunes, and police searched the entire area. Some articles of children's clothing were found, but no body. Police would later say that there are wild dogs that frequent the area, and it is possible, according to them, that they had scavenged the remains. In Simon's confession, he stated that he had committed his first murder in 1986, his final year of school. He claimed that the murders had been as a result of two factors. The first was that, as a young child in the Eastern Cape, he had a curse put on him by an old woman, and the second and most predominant contributing factor was that he had been hearing the voice of his older brother, who had sodomized him, and this had driven him to kill. It was discovered that Simon's brother, Boise, was murdered. Reports conflict in whether this was in 1991 or 1993 but I tend to think that it may have been the latter, if we consider that Simon's most vicious spree was in 1994, and his cooling-off periods between murders became far shorter, indicating he was possibly in a heightened state of emotion. I find Simon's description of his brother's voice in his head very interesting. It would be easy for us to immediately assume that Simon was suffering from schizophrenia or a multiple personality disorder. This was not the case, though. Simons was taken for a full psychiatric evaluation after his arrest, and while he was diagnosed with several personality disorders and depression, he was ultimately not found to be mentally ill to the extent that could be used as a defense for his actions. Mickey Pistorius describes the type of killer that Simons was as a reversal of the active passive roles, which had been the focus of his childhood trauma. She explains that when Simons was abused by his brother, he assumed a passive role, To that of his brother's active aggressor role. In adulthood, he sought to continually recreate the reverse of that situation by choosing children who were similar in age and ethnicity to him when his trauma occurred and inflicting the aggression on them so that he became the active participant and they were the passive participant. He repeated this pattern continually in the hopes that it would resolve itself. I don't claim to be a psychologist, of course, but in my opinion, When Simon said he heard his brother's voice telling him to commit crimes, perhaps he was hearing the memory of the trauma associated with his brother's voice during the assaults and because he was actively trying to reverse his abuse, he took that on as his brother telling him to do these things. One of the reasons I say this is because Simons claims to have heard his brother's voice, even before he died in 1993. So there is clearly no mysticism or possession type situation here. It is merely Simons' own thoughts, which he allocates to his brother in his mind. Mike Stowe, the prosecutor who would take Simons to trial for Elroy's murder, claimed that he and members of the investigating team had witnessed Simon having a visceral reaction to the mention of his brother's name. Stowe claimed that Simon's had such a dramatic change in demeanor and manner that he appeared to have physically changed appearance. He also growled and spoke in what is referred to as tongues during these episodes. Stowe claimed that on one occasion when one of these transformations occurred, he had gone to call the investigating officer so that he could also witness it. He claims that the officer could almost not recognize Simon's. Simons wrote in one of his confessions, I am nothing, I am dirty, I am filthy and not worthy. I'm sorry for letting you down. Don't get caught in the same thing. I really regret everything. It's hard to be possessed by unknown forces. These forces cannot be explained by medication. I salute you with love for a better and understanding and peaceful South Africa. Due to the advanced states of decomposition in which most of the Mitchell's planes' victims were found, the DNA evidence was either broken down or not able to be processed with the technology available in 1994. Police had nothing else to tie Simons to the original killings, but believed that they could secure a conviction for the last murder with the eyewitness testimony, his two confessions, although he had retracted them, and the fact that he had pointed out some of the scenes. Simons was placed in an identity parade. And identified by the eyewitnesses, albeit unconvincingly. She stated that he looked almost like the man she had seen with Ulroy that day, but his hair had been different. In the identity parade, Simon's hair was short, but the witness claimed that on the day she had seen him, his hair was worn in an afro-like style, the way she had depicted him in the identikit. Police felt that this was sufficient evidence and charged Simon with Ulroy's murder. As much as the community were relieved, to finally have the man who had haunted their nightmares for eight years in custody. They were equally shocked to see who had been arrested. Simons had been well respected in the community and loved by his pupils. A co-worker remembered an occasion when one of their students had undergone open heart surgery, and Simons had volunteered to sit by the child's bedside so that the mother could go home and rest for a while. Other colleagues started putting the pieces together pretty quickly. A male teacher at Alpine Primary School, where Simons taught, Remember that when the station strangler was at his worst, all male teachers in the school had patrolled the school grounds at lunchtime to ensure the children were safe. Simons had refused to take part. They had locked classrooms during school time. Simons refused to lock his class and would walk between classrooms knocking on doors and saying, Open up, it's the strangler. The teachers had asked their Standard 3 or Grade 4 students to do a project on the Station Strangler to raise awareness. Simons had refused to let his class do the project. Parents of the murdered children came forward with stories of their children having been familiar with Simons. Donovan Swartz's mother claimed that even though her son had not attended the school that Simons taught at, she realized after he was arrested that her son knew him. Donovan would play cricket with Simons after school, and he would sometimes take Donovan and a few other boys to the beach. Donovan had come home with two brand new cricket bats and cricket balls. When Stella asked where they had come from, Donovan said Mr. Simons had given them to him. Reginald Heslop's son Jason was not officially counted among the murder victims but he went missing during the Strangler's 94 reign of terror and his body was never found. Reginald also stated that his son had spoken about a Mr. Simons in the weeks before he went missing. In fact, his son had spoken so much about this teacher that when Jason went missing, Reginald had gone to Jason's school to see if he could chat to this teacher in case he knew something about his whereabouts. When he arrived at the school, he was told that no Mr. Simons was employed there. After commons erased he put two and two together. The trial of Norman Simons began on the 27th of February 1995 and was presided over by Judge W.A. Findierwinter. The admissibility of eyewitness testimony and the scenes that Simon had allegedly pointed out were brought into question by Simons' defense attorney, Course Lowe. Simons did not testify, but sat in the dock, taking notes or filling out crosswords, occasionally clicking his tongue when he disagreed with something a witness said. The investigation was pulled through the ringer, with almost every Aspect being brought into question by the defense. The police were accused of finding the first person they could to fit their profile so that they could get an arrest and appease the public. Reginald Heslop Desperate to find out any shred of information about his son's disappearance, attended the court proceedings. He recalls seeing Simons sitting in the dock and knowing that he possibly had the answers to the questions that were haunting him. He pushed his way right to the front, as close to Simons as he could get. He claims that at that moment, Simons had turned around and looked directly at him, saying, I'm sorry they never found Jason's body. Jason Heslop was reportedly the only boy who Simons had described by name in his written confessions. He had not admitted to killing him though, nor would he reveal the child's whereabouts. On the fifteenth of june nineteen ninety five, Norman Simons was found guilty of the murder of Elroy Funroy. He was sentenced to twenty five years for his murder and ten years for kidnapping. He was remanded to Drakenstein Correctional Facility to serve his sentence. Although the parents of the other victims had not received justice for their children, they were sated with the knowledge that their killer was in jail. After having retracted his confession, Norman Simons had not stopped proclaiming his innocence of all the crimes of which he was accused. He wrote a letter to Elroy's grandmother stating that he did not kill her grandson. His defense lawyer, Coors was just as adamant and in 1998 he brought Simons' case to the Court of Appeals. The appeal ended with Simons' sentence being increased to life. Simons became a model prisoner in Drakenstein Correctional Facility. He mentored new prisoners to acclimatize to their new surroundings, just as he had mentored ex-convicts in his past life. Kurslow would not give up on his client and announced that he was so convinced of Simons' innocence that he would not cut his hair until Simons was released and cleared. Life had returned to some sense of normality in Mitchell's plane. The parents of the murdered boys continued to miss the young men and could never plug the holes that had been left in their families. After Simon's sentence was increased, they felt some sense of justice. He would have to fight for parole, and if he refused to confess, there was a good chance he would never see the light of day again. An uneasy calm settled over the Valtafreda Dunes, which had seen such horror. The monster was in a cage. Or was he? In 2005, an inquest was held into the original Mitchell's Plains Station Strangler killings. It would start to snowball the revelations, which would bring everything that South Africa thought they knew to be true about the case, into question. Simons was not charged with the original Mitchell's plane killings because there was insufficient evidence, but he had been brought forward to the public as the station strangler, tried in the minds of the community, and found guilty. As the inquest continued, though, it began to emerge that there was not really a lack of evidence. It just didn't match Simon's. DNA technology in 1994 was very limited, but when the inquest was held in 2005, it was possible to extract DNA from some of the very old, degenerated samples and compare them to the known samples, including Simon's. Semen that was found on the back of Jeremy Smith's underpants was tested. It did not match Simon's. Semen found on Elroy Funroy's underpants also did not match Simon's. The note found in one of the victim's pockets underwent handwriting analysis, as did a crossword puzzle found beside another victim, which was from a newspaper printed on the same day, as the victim's murder. Neither handwriting sample matched various samples obtained from Simons throughout the years. The crossword puzzle was also fingerprinted and clear prints were lifted, which did also not match Simons. I will mention here that Simons was known to enjoy completing crossword puzzles from the same newspaper during his original trial. Coors presented an array of evidence at the inquest, which he felt pointed to the innocence of his client. He claims that Simon's confessions were given after a week-long session of intense interrogation. He says that Simon's became so distraught during this time that the officer in charge decided to send him for a psychiatric evaluation. In an extremely strange move, though, police officers are alleged to have continued interrogating Simons while he was under psychiatric evaluation. This is very irregular, and if it is the case, then any information extracted from Simons during this time could be brought into question. Courslow also presented an alibi for Simons for the day of Elroy Funroy's murder. He was seen at a library in Claremont at 2.30 that day it would have been impossible for him to get to Strand by four o'clock to be seen by the witness. Simon's conviction had mostly leveraged on the eyewitness testimony, but Lowe presented a bombshell to the inquest, a reward of 250,000 rand which had been offered by a local supermarket chain was awarded to the eyewitness before Simons was convicted. Usually rewards of this nature will be on the condition that the suspect is successfully convicted, but in this case, it seems, the suspect was determined to be guilty before being been tried. The eyewitness was further brought into doubt when it was revealed that she had pointed out that the hair of the man she had seen with Elroy that day was different to Simons. The man she had seen had a large afro-like haircut, while Simons was short. This seemed a small inconsistency, until a photograph of Simons was presented to the inquest. The photograph was taken on the morning of Elroy's murder. Simons had gone to register as a police reservist to assist with the station's strangler searches. As part of this registration, his photo was taken, which showed him with short hair. Unless his hair grew within hours into an afro, there is very little chance that he was the same man our witnesses had seen. The wide array of identicates that had been produced during the Station Strangler investigation was mind-boggling. I will post a snippet of a thesis I found online on our Facebook page, which shows all of the identicates together. When you see them all in one place, next to a photo of Simon's, you can only wonder if it was the same person. Witness memories are often unreliable though, and I can imagine that once the witnesses heard what the man they had seen was accused of doing, the trauma may have clouded their memories to an extent. Of course Lowe had also discovered that someone else had seen Alroy that day. The George family was familiar with Alroy from the neighbourhood and saw him on the train that afternoon. They stated that he was alone, with no strange man that they could see in sight. When asked where he was going, Alroy had said he was going to see his aunt in Firgrove an uncle of his, had allegedly also been on the same train and interacted with Ulroy, as he was also going to visit the same woman. None of these witnesses appeared at Simon's trial. I will say that these witness accounts do seem odd to me. I wonder whether the people in question don't perhaps have their days mixed up, as their stories completely disagree with Ulroy's cousin's story. The inquest heard that at one of the crime scenes, a witness had reported seeing a VW Jetta parked near the scene and no other vehicles. The witness was alleged to have heard screams coming from the bushes near the vehicle. Simons had never owned such a vehicle. Two men came forward to the inquest to state that they believed they had been the Station Strangler's first attempted victims. One of these men will play a greater role in the story later, but at the time, their identities were kept confidential. As young boys in the 1980s, the children had been abducted and sodomized by a stranger in Mitchell's plane. The attack had exactly the same M.O. as the Station Strangler murders, but these boys knew Simons at the time and said that he was not their attacker. The officer that had been involved in the pointing out of the crime scenes by Simons had admitted to the inquest that there had been more inconsistencies than correct instances in the scenes he had pointed out. It was revealed that there had been a witness for the prosecution who they decided not to call at the time. Kevin Pretorius was a friend of Norman Simons. He had initially given a statement saying that he had seen Donovan Swartz with Simons on many occasions and that Simons had tied Donovan's hands behind his back to, quote, teach him a lesson, unquote. Pretorius also stated that Simons had told him he had raped little boys in the past. The reason that Pretorius's statement was not used against Simons was because he changed his story too many times in the days before the trial and the prosecutor eventually found him to be too unreliable to put on the stand. After he was turned away as a witness, Pretorius claimed that all of his statements had been made on intimidation from the police. He said that they had forced him to undress, physically intimidated him, and sworn and belittled him until he gave them the story they wanted. Shortly after Kevin Pretorius made these statements, he was shot dead outside his home. His killer has never been identified. It was further alleged during the inquest that in 1995, while Simons was still in custody, more children disappeared and more bodies were found. I haven't found any concrete evidence to prove this, but the possibility exists that it is true. The inquest continued for three years. On the 9th of December 2008, Regional Magistrate Marilee's role closed the inquest and presented its findings. It was claimed that there was sufficient evidence to prove that Simons had killed at least six of the victims in addition to Ulroy. but due to the lapse of time, she declined to recommend further prosecution. Simons was returned to prison to continue serving his sentence. Of course, we do not have access to all of the information presented in that inquest, but considering the major evidence presented that contradicted the findings, one would think that the evidence that contributed to the magistrate's decision would also be made available. Coorsloe, the defence attorney of Simons and a strong proponent for his innocence, passed away in 2011 after a struggle with cancer. In 2014, one of the men who had testified at the inquest as being the first surviving victim of the station strangler spoke to the press. He had hidden his story his entire life, even if his wife did not know that he'd been attacked by the strangler. The man came forward because he'd always been uneasy about the findings of the inquest and wanted his story placed on public record. He explained that he and a friend had been approached by a man when they lived in Mitchell's Plain as children in the 1980s. The man had offered them ten rand each to help him carry banana boxes, and they agreed. The man had directed them to a remote area, suddenly slowing his pace and dropping behind them. It was then that he had swung a cord around both their necks and forced them to the ground. He had sodomized both boys and then attempted to strangle them. He claims that the man had fallen asleep. And he and his friend had managed to escape. He went on to state that both he and his friend knew Norman Simons at the time and they were certain that he was not their attacker. The man then revealed that in 2014 he had been contacted by a police officer about his case. The police officer had told him that they had recently arrested a man in Johannesburg for sodomizing and murdering young boys. The man had lived in Mitchell's Plain in the 1980s and 1990s, he was never questioned about the station strangler murders. Shortly after this admission, and as Simons would soon be up for parole, the station strangler became a topic of conversation in the media again, and one morning in 2014, a radio station was discussing the case when they received an unexpected telephone call. Mike Stowe, the prosecutor who had led the alroy franroi murder charge against Norman Simons in 1994, had decided to break his silence. Stowe told the radio station that he was now unsure as to whether they had convicted the right man. He admitted to having these doubts, even at the time of the trial. He brought up his reasons, the fact that the witness had described a totally different hairstyle on the man she had seen, and the fact that the woman had been given the huge reward before Simons was even convicted. He also said that no one had testified to seeing Elroy on the train that day. By this, I assume, he is acknowledging the existence of the statements by the George family and the fact that they were not called to testify. Stowe acknowledged that Simons had been placed at the library in Claremont at 2.30 on the afternoon of the murder and that it would have been impossible for him to get to Strand Station by the time Elroy was taken. Stowe said that if Simons had testified about his retracted confessions, he believes the trial would have had a very different outcome. Simons' attorney had stated that his client was in no state of mind to testify in his own defence. Stowe's admission sent shockwaves through the country, and family members of the victim said that they could not believe that he was only coming forward now. A member of the law fraternity would state that they felt Stowe's failure to make his doubts known at the time of the trial was tantamount to dereliction of duty. In 2015, Norman Simons applied for parole. His application was declined. There was a moment of panic when a newspaper had contacted Drakenstein Correctional Facility to get a comment on the upcoming parole hearing, and they were told that the Correctional Services was not sure whether they still, quote, had him, unquote. A few days later, they retracted the statement and confirmed that they had, quote, found Simons, unquote, and that he was indeed still in their facility. I honestly don't know what to say about that. You lost an alleged serial killer? In 2016, a self-confessed and convicted paedophile, Brian Schoffer, was found hanging in the police cells at Lentagia Police Station. 58-year-old Schoffer had been arrested just days before for the sexual assault of a 17-year-old boy who was living with him at the time. Brian Schoffer's arrest had been surrounded by much controversy. He had been released from his initial sentence for molestation and sodomy in 2010, and while he was initially under the watch of a parole officer, he managed to surround himself with children again. He started advertising online to tutor children, and although at the time of his arrest, he claimed that all the parents of the students he tutored knew very well that he had a previous history of sex crimes, this would turn out to be very untrue. It also emerged that he had managed to secure a job at a Cape Town primary school shortly after leaving jail, although he was only there for a few months. Schoeffer claimed to be completely rehabilitated and denied the most recent charges against him. His suicide came after two of his landlords had gone to the media with some disturbing claims. Between the two men, they had acted as his landlords at various premises for the six years that he had been out of jail. Both men had been told by Schoffer that his sentence had been in regard to a relationship he had with a 16-year-old girl who had lied to him about her age, and that he had been charged with statutory rape over the misunderstanding. This was completely untrue. And in fact, Schofa had been found guilty in 1994 of multiple charges of rape and sodomy against several boys under the age of 15. His landlords both separately made statements to the media about having seen children living with Schofa over the years. The 17-year-old boy that was most recently accusing Schofa of sexual assault had apparently been living with him since he was 12 years old. Both landlords also stated that they believed Schofa was the real station strangler. He had reportedly lived in Mitchell's Plain during the same period as the Strangler was active there. He was a teacher. He had also lived in Strand. had claimed that his paedophilia stemmed from a sexual abuse he endured as a child by his uncle. He said that his father had been aware that his uncle was raping him, but he had ignored it. Besides the claims made by his landlords, Schofer was made aware shortly before his suicide that he was going to be charged with a rape case in Stiernberg, a sexual assault in Mitchell's Plain, a sexual assault in Hanover Park, and 18 cases of sexual assault involving street children in Strand, where he used to reside. Schofer served his initial sentence in the same prison as Norman Simons. Since the chauffeur allegation surfaced, unnamed criminal experts have come forward saying that at the time of the Station Strangler investigation, police had looked into the possibility of there either being two killers with exactly the same MO, or that the Station Strangler had an accomplice. Schofer matches the profile almost exactly, except for his race. This may, however, not be a major obstacle, as chauffeur lived in the same community as these boys for many years, and despite being of a different race, there is a very good possibility that he had become as much a part of the community as anyone else. Also in 2016, the body of a 26-year-old man, Adrien DeForce, was found in the exact location of one of the station strangler victims. He had been shot and then his body had been staged in a manner which was extremely similar to the strangler victims. It was not confirmed as to whether he had been sexually assaulted. At this time, there was a decent amount of talk about the station strangler again, so it's likely that this was a sick joke by Adrien's killer. The case of the station strangler is an absolute rabbit hole, just when you think you're getting to the bottom of it. The tunnel of truth takes another turn, and you end up back where you started, just a little more uncertain. There may not be physical evidence to prove that Norman Simons was the station strangler, but there are also far too many connections for me to ignore. His personal contact with so many of the boys that were murdered or went missing could be considered to be an act of grooming. While it is not uncommon for people to make false confessions, whether it's under duress or simply for their own, sometimes incomprehensible reasons, it is rather rare for someone to confess and retract their confession twice. I tend to think that there had to be a shred of truth to each confession, whether he was solely responsible or not. Simons is clearly a damaged man. His childhood has left deep scars in his soul and I do not think that it's coincidence or completely a matter of being framed that placed him in the middle of the station strangler investigation. As for the police, I think that they found themselves in a very difficult situation with pressure from every side and scenes of horror all around them. They did not want any more blood on their hands just as much as the community wanted their sons to stop being brutalized. I do think that the political turmoil around that time played a role in the urgency of the investigation. One cannot help but wonder how many lives could have been saved if the same resources had been applied to the situation when the killings first started. While I do believe that Simon's had some sort of involvement in the killings, I cannot personally ignore all the loose ends. There are too many other predators who were in the area at the same time that could easily fit the bull. I don't know whether the DNA samples from the victims were all used up in the 2005 inquest, but if they weren't, it may be worth doing a comparison against Schofer and the Johannesburg killer, even if it's just to give the remaining family members some peace of mind. Many of the parents of the victims and witnesses have passed away, but a tragedy like this leaves ripples in a family and community that will continue sucking survivors under the surface until it's resolved. I do think that law enforcement and our justice system have some answering to do. No matter what the crime is, we cannot have our justice system convicting people without sufficient evidence. And as much as I don't think Simons is completely innocent, I also don't see that a court should have found him guilty solely on the evidence presented. It was flimsy at best and laughable at worst. But then I need to consider the flip side of that coin. If Simons was the killer, twenty-two children and one adult, and he happened to just get really lucky and have have no evidence against him he could have been released back into the world to kill again i don't think that simons will ever be paroled and if he is he will have a very difficult life outside for all intents and purposes his life ended on the 13th of april 1994 when he was branded the station strangler because even if he by some miracle has his innocence proven in the minds of many he will always be a monster For me, the real tragedy here is not that one man may have unfairly lost his freedom, while that of course would be tragic enough. For me, the real tragedy is that 22 children lost their lives in the most horrific way. Picture an entire class of young boys, all sitting behind their desks, in freshly starched white school shirts and grey standard-issue school pants. Their smiles are broad and innocent. They're chattering animatedly about soccer and cricket and the games they play at home. And then suddenly a dark cloud moves in over all of them. They're blanketed and silenced. Their chatter and giggles, a distant memory, just an echo in time. These boys were loved deeply and had futures, and all of that was taken away from them, and their memories sullied by continued injustices. Let's for a moment not wonder about who took their lives, but rather remember that they lived. Jonathan, Yusuf, Mario, Freddy, Samuel, Calvin, Denver, Jacobus, Elino, Donovan, Jeremy B, Jeremy S, Marcelino, Neville, Fabian, Owen, Elroy, and the five boys whose names remain unknown, you are remembered. listening to episode three on True Crime South Africa. If the station strangler case got your mind racing as much as it did mine, please join our discussion of cases we cover on our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Our website has full transcripts of the cases we cover and there is a comment section there too. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on the podcatcher you use. A huge thank you goes out to Prime Circle for giving us permission to use their song Evidence as part of our soundtrack. I look forward to chatting to you in our next episode.